Good evening. It's a really privileged situation to give a lecture within this beautiful installation from Selin Condorelli next to Hitoshi Tayar's classical piece. It's a classic for me. And I'm thankful to Aileen and Johan and their team. It's a very lovely team for their very kind invitation and an amazing organization of my week here, immediately putting me in contact with very good artists, good people, and spending very good time. So this is what an art institution can do for you. They can organize a lecture in the uh, favorite pieces uh, you have, and your professor from CONSFA can sit in the audience. One of the <laughs> most precise brains I have ever met in my life. I'm very thankful to her for her contributions into the discussions we developed at Curator Lab. So it can be easily say, we can easily depart from there that I learned curating from the artists. In Istanbul, after psychology, when I started to be interested in exhibition making, to transform myself from a psychologist or an academic in that sense, like six years in psychology is really a big investment. My mother was very disappointed. Um, I had two years in a visual culture program, and I worked with two artists. And then I ended up at Curator Lab at Konsvak in Stockholm. It was a need for me to be connected with a curatorial discourse. Monstrang and Marcia Lewandowska was taking care of the program with others. And after a short period of time freelancing in Europe, based in Berlin, in between Istanbul and Berlin, with a lot of residencies all around, I ended up at Künstlerhaus Stuttgart four years. And that's an institution at the late 70s, early 80s, established by the artists. Now, since November, I am the director of Artspace New Zealand. It is an institution founded by artists. It becomes more and more consistent in my practice that the, the history of exhibition making, I mean, and the theoretical discourse around curating. My like, objective in general is to connect these two parallel histories with other references of imagination, inspiration, and learning theories from psychology. It's a kind of cognitive and creative map. So we will talk about uh, five projects, and we are going to move it in between three, four institutions. And we are going to start with um, with a response, with responding to this very practical question, what, are, what can art institutions do? Uh, so some terms during this lecture are going to juxtapose, like thinking about audience, time and space, contextuality, institutional space and organizational time. And like now I feel it's almost 10 years that I am doing curating, I'm doing exhibitions. And I have two major concerns I can very simplify from the beginning to the end, looking all through my CV. These two concerns were always there. So I believe that any exhibition is born out of a need, and its production, installation, and reception are based on such a critical decision-making process of balancing the necessities. These necessities can be artistic, contextual, critical, institutional, social, political, or art historical. And these are happening at very critical moments of conceptualization, facilitation, and communication. And as the second concern, 
I think institutions with a strong dedication to research development for public access and interest in designing new learning experiences are more fit to create efficient exhibition forms as well as creative ideas which are seeded into the local context and will logically catch international attention and have long-term impact. So, in terms of defining my position, Hannah Arendt stands at a very important uh, place in the whole reading list on my desk. So, in fact, I can, I mean, I come from completely another background. I didn't study art. I don't have an art story background. So, in this case, my professional identity rises from recognizing that all of the activity occurs as an audience and to an audience. It's self-reflexive. This shift between states of reception and production, or more, the ability to consciously make this shift is what characterizes me as an agent. And the term in, this, in the sense carried by Hannah Arendt's concept of the human as agent of his, her existence, as one who simultaneously has the ability to impose the choices and make the choices and impose them onto the world. The potential for agency doesn't belong to me. It's my belief that any audience can receive and produce given the proper conditions for awareness. And within this belief, I approach the theoretical vision for my role. In 2010, I did an exhibition in Berlin. It was a multi-venue project. It was called Correct Me If I'm Critical. So the Swedish embassy was hosting, producing, and financing the exhibition. And we managed to locate most of the resources in Kreuzberg context using already existing structures. And through that exhibition, I think I found out my role in the whole Istanbul-Berlin connection coming from Turkey Germany is a quite interesting context. You have a community like a ready-made. But before going to that direction, I am talking about Künstlerhaus. I have a very short introduction to why I ended up in curating. In my hometown, it's the middle of uh, Anatolia. The city is called Karaman. And this guy who has the statue is located in the middle of the city, so when I was six till 11, it was there. So on the way to the school, coming back and forth, I saw it every day. There was a text, and the text was saying, from now on, in Dervish content, in Dervish convent, in council, in the place, in the parliament, in the public space, in all the squares, no language other than Turkish is allowed. I started seeing it when I was not able to read. And I remember one day that I was kind of, you know, the syllabus, you do this bubbling. I did that. And now I still think about it. I think this sculpture is the reason that I ended up in curating, because understanding this became one of the concerns for me in terms of thinking about the public space, image, power, linguistic experience, language, identity, being Turkish, not being Turkish, because my father used to have a workshop and we had Kurdish workers there. When my father was not around, they increased the volume of the sound, the Kurdish radio a bit higher. And my cousins from Germany, based in Freiburg, they were visiting us. And when the discussion, when the conversation got, gets a bit complicated, they switch into German. So I was always thinking, who is punishing, who is controlling? When they don't speak Turkish, 
but they don't know it because it's written in Turkish. So there is an epistemological border behind this. It's written in Turkish and it doesn't allow you to speak any other language than Turkish. This dilemma was interesting. And I can say I became skeptical about everything through this. And they moved the sculpture somewhere else and replaced by a polyester shit one. And I, later I found out this sculpture is still somewhere in a region, less crowded, less central. But it's, it still exists. So we can say, going into another direction, I want to talk about the Palais de Tokyo show I did 2013 before going into Künstlerhaus program. I have a little statement, thanks to Bruno Latour. Exhibition making is a way for making things public. The process of exhibition making, the everyday, is just as important. Every little aspect is a project in and of itself, from the concept phrase to the distribution and documentation. In this sense, an absolute seriousness exists in the knowledge hosted by the exhibition, not as a didactic form of representation, but as a dynamic, interactive framework for asking questions. These questions take on the form of everyday, reflect our process, and are constructed collaboratively in conversation and are generously distributed through the subtle mass means. This is done with playfulness at hand, only possible on all perceptive planes, the visual, auditory, and sensory. There's a very strong connection between this statue and the exhibition I curated in Paris, but I have to move to a PDF, which is... I'm really thankful to this exhibition because today, because of the schedule we have, it is really not easy to develop a proper research. You have to always run into a schedule that takes a lot from your uh, time. So this layout, this PDF, generously supported by South Foundation, National Bibliothek Paris, Istanbul Library, two researchers from Istanbul, Dino Shirin, and of course, uh, Künstlerhaus was one of the important partners. Most of the pieces I produced within the solo exhibitions turned into a big group show, which was 2013, their summer program. They invited everyone to send a proposal, and it was a pool of 600 applications. I'm an open call monster. I don't know so many people. I am not a rich kid, so mostly I got all the exhibitions through open calls, closed competitions. This is one of them. And in this sense, it investigates, again, the epistemological relationships between two spaces of imagination, sky and the screen. And the references are very clear. In the beginning, you saw a miniature. Since like five, six years, I'm completely obsessed with this miniature. It's from 16th century. And once I went, I got all the permissions and I managed to convince the bureaucrats and I finally found myself in Istanbul Library to be able to see this book live. And I thought I should invite an artist friend of mine, learning from the artist. Cevdet Erek came with me and right after this long session going through all the uh, documents together, he said, well, you got the best miniature because the rest of it is mostly about wars, killing, sultan's wedding, ceremony, or things like this. Like, it is, it is an image 
that represents the observatory house, Takutin Efendi, who is the official governor, the astrologist, uh, established by the order of Third Murat, and it continued 10 years. It is a bit sad history of Turkish uh, history because it always feels like we build something, but also we destroy the same thing. Uh, I don't know why it's not slide showing, it's not looping. This is a good place to stay. Horizontal. Uh, and next to this image, I was very much interested in putting the Microsoft wallpaper that was given to us by late 90s. You remember it. It's a plain grass sky, it's plastic. But it's interesting. It's like a tabula rasa. It's like a cognitive blank surface. Like you can throw every creative idea onto it. It was our desktop for very long. And comparing these two images together, it's quite interesting because on one of them, they are looking at the sky. And it is a different interdisciplinarity that we are having right now. It's, there are no boundaries, epistemological or ontological, between poetry or uh, cooking or astrology or meditation or uh, mathematics and literature. They are, I mean, it's all men. I know the problematic part of it, but we worked on the piece. So the exhibition was more and more interesting, interested in constructing this moment, this space of learning in another reality, borrowing works from different artists, engaging, commissioning them into the process, but completely obsessed with this. And looking at it again with this relationship between sky and the screen, because screen makes me nervous. Every screen makes me frustrated. Every monitor stresses me so much. And I can say the curiosity for knowing what will happen in the future, looking at sky, astrology, astronomy, metaphysics, everything, it is an important dimension of human psychology. From astrology to tarot, geography to science, the sky we share seems to operate as an open field to imagine a future and create a perspective for human beings. Today's visual technologies are based on translating, distributing, like this computer feeling, like editing the information via screens, projectors, monitors, which are getting smaller and smaller and more personal. Even I miss this 70s feeling like Arthur C. Clarke or Stanley Kubrick. They had a vision about future. I don't know any good one from my generation. Don't we have a vision about future? Is it related with the screens getting smaller and smaller? Like, what's happening? This was the question. I was very much interested in mounting a cognitive space, thinking about it. While Shavki's piece was very big contribution, I'm very thankful. Uh, in most of the designs and structures, the sky keeps its archetypical role for developing a conceptual base. However, the virtual reality takes over the physical understanding of space. The instinctive motive of looking at the sky is still embodied and in the experiments and in the technologies of science, on science and technology. So associations with sky always brings curiosity and an interest in what will happen next. The levels of predictability differ from practical or spiritual, for example, the conditions of whether it's going to rain or not, or the presence or absence of gods. These are all the questions related with this. Basically, I wanted to motivate the audience after the exhibition, when they visit the exhibition, when they're out of the exhibition, to look back at the sky again with another mental state. 
maybe borrowing this artistic state of mind and because one image is so old and it's a physical form, we, it was scanned through this process, so it has another life now. But seeing it live there in, in that context, and another one, there is no physical form for it. It's basically a JPEG file travels everywhere. But which one is more older and which one is consumed, which is more personal, which one is more private? So responding to this question again, this very practical question, what can art institutions do? I think art, I'm interested in creating this kind of art institution. This was also existing in my application file for Künstlerhaus. I also put it there as a reference for art space. So it's like a learning environment, a kind of library, a lab, an observatory house. So looking at the future, but with a curiosity in the future itself, more like a form of, as, as I said, I think art institutions are a ground. It's an exhibition ground, and it depends how you position the exhibition itself. And within this research process, there's a very direct reference to Boris Groys. I met him 2011 in Sharjah, and I told him, Do you, are you in contact with Orhan Pamuk? Because in his book at Art Power, in the chapter related with curating, on curating, curatorship, he's talking about the novel from Orhan Pamuk, Istanbul-based writer who got the Nobel Prize. Uh, he connects it with the tradition of miniature, with the tradition of traditional painting in, in the uh, Middle East context. And the chapter on curating, on the curatorship, he states, to practice art atheism would be, under, would be to understood artworks not as incarnations, but mere documents, illustrations, or significations. An illustration doesn't complement a story in the end. will become a false idol, says the Sultan in the novel. Since we can possibly believe in the absent story, we will naturally begin to believe in the picture itself. This is why it's forbidden and all this Charlie Hebdo and everything, it comes from there, not from Humane. It's a politics of representation. This would be no different than the worship of idols in the Kaaba that went on before our prophet peace and blessings be upon him had been destroyed. You do understand that eventually we would then unthinkingly be worshipping any picture that's hang on the wall, don't you? So Boris Groys borrows this to talk about the representation and how the painter and the curator have a kind of similar and different approach at the same time. The signature of the master is your signature at the end. So there is no signature. The ability, the credibility, the level of your talent is completely determined by the level of your the level of how you copy it. Like this relationship between your master, the discourse, the school. Um, I have to jump to another project, but maybe it's good to see the. Oh. Very clumsy. I think I want to continue with this project that I was involved by 2013. By the way, we believe that it's something for good. Like this, this is tradition in the country. I feel quite relaxed now. 
this project has shaped my relationship with Istanbul at another level because after I left Istanbul, like almost 10 years, this going back and forth for exhibitions and still being involved with the scene, but I was living in Europe and I can say it was almost an optional exile because that was the only way to become a curator. It's a very small scene, it's a very small cake, so already the corners are taken, so it was very little thing, very little chance to run an institution or develop a program. And this project that I was involved was happening same time with Gezi. Fulya Erdemci was curating the 13th Istanbul Biennial, and it was a very intense summer. Uh, it was the biggest public protest against the government in the history of uh, Turkey, and uh, Fulya was very involved with the local politics, urban transformation, and the public space, and she imagined that exhibition, an outdoor installation that is also uh, including the park, which was kind of later becoming the center of everything. And through our conversation, I felt the need. She was uh, also uh, very long, long years ago, I was the curatorial assistant, so we had a relation, working relationship set up before that. And when I joined the team, there was a hanging discussion because of the whole process, the proposal from Draxet and Elgrim was not being able to be produced because it was a very smart proposal. I'm not allowed to talk about it, but it was not happening. So it was taking Gezi Park as a base and creating a private and public relationship with another public space, private space, turning it into public. Thank you very much. Uh, what I did was I was working with Draxet and Elgrim before, so I had an idea of uh, their practice. I had an idea of our uh, collaboration. I had an idea of their proposal. I was looking around, and I think this is not an institution on its own. This is a biennial form, but Istanbul Biennial has another role in the Istanbul context because I came into the, when I came into the scene, there was no modern art gallery. All the galleries were functioning at different levels. So Istanbul Biennial was a very important resource. When I remember the first time I saw Yuko Hasegawa's Biennial, I wanted to become a curator. It has an impact on you, and you see the things there. You are involved. As an artist assistant or a coordinator, you gain a lot of experience. So it is an institution in that sense, like a school, and it raised a generation a generation of artists, curators who are around now. So better I see it like this. And my uh, role was from the beginning very clear. I thought from the very beginning this pioneer had to happen. What I proposed was I proposed a remake from their uh, installation in Paris almost a decade ago. They installed a show in Paris. And as part of the show, they hired writers, young men, every day coming to the gallery and taking diaries making uh, time for it and recording their day, like how they spend, what they have done. Most probably it referred to a very queer context in Paris, thinking about Mare and what Draxet and Elgrim wanted to achieve. But interestingly, in the Istanbul context, it operated at another level because outside, I mean, imagine Istanbul Biennial is opening and we are welcoming, for instance, the board from MoMA and 
it's all around tear gas, and we are completely under this. And it's, it's just like this outside. It's just public demonstrations, very intense city. And after Fulia decided to put the exhibition in the gallery, it was a clear decision. She didn't want to collaborate with local authorities. The biennial was still happening, but there was a clear question waiting for us. How could you translate this into the momentum of this exhibition? I think this is one of the successful translations because imagine young, angry protesters tagging every day the streets of Istanbul. Ten minutes later, local authorities are painting everything into gray. So we were literally walking in a city with a lot of gray painted walls, like abstractions in a, in a bad quality, but still, it was a kind of very interesting, aggressive fight between the local authorities and the street. And seven people that I made a long list, a pool in discussion with Inga and Michael, like trying to represent the diversity in the group, we managed to convince seven of them, paid job every day, writing, coming to the biennial context. In the beginning, very intense, but during the exhibition, negotiated between them, loser schedule. So they are very beautiful. They represent all the anger. They represent all the political awareness. They represent all the process, all the discussion. And it's a very interesting piece. When you go through the seven notebooks, you read a very contemporary history of what happened in two years. We are working on the publication. And I think politics is every day. It's not solely a profession, a concept, or a ceremony. It's a concern for a thing, an act of staging attention for a public. It's for us. The politics of every day retains a focus on the overlooked and, importantly, on the ways in which macro-political concepts such as violence, ideology, democracy, imperialism, and human rights seep into the micro level of everyday experience. In this concern for things, the simultaneity of spectacular and normal becomes very interesting. When a war is waged elsewhere, people continue to live their daily lives. War shifts from the back to the foreground continuously, whether it be a newspaper headline or as an explosion, and yet the ordinary functions response adopts. To stay relevant in the ongoing set of simultaneous activities that plague the work and affect individuals, their minds and bodies is to restrain from the gesture that symbolizes the political by detaching it from the everyday process of negotiation and adaptation. Instead, one must create concern for the common, to meditate states of affairs and to play with modes of making public through the occasion of the exhibition, what emerges us in between the disputed states of affairs is the belief that is a political act to construct hope today. Responding to the question back again, I think it was a very strong living document of its time. And I think institutions can sometimes, if everything works, luck, life, and us, they can achieve these things. I don't have any idea about the whole biennial, but I think this is a great piece, and this was a great piece. And to, reproduce, to produce it another, in another context, I wouldn't expect it would function like this. I was giving the same, same lecture almost like two, two years, and with this condition, I felt like situation, I felt like changing it. So 
It's the first time. It's the testing ground. I'm very excited. They were paid. Uh, Inger and Michael sent me a very clear description of what they want as contributors. And I made a list of 35 people. And I sent their demographic, CV, and image kind of everything. Then they made it 20, and Ingar came before Michael and I think from Tworth we interviewed them. It was a paid job, and in the context of Istanbul, it was, was good paid. Künstlerhaus, <laughs> uh, finally. I think I talk too much. I have a lot of material, so I'm going to squeeze it now. From Künstlerhaus program, I really want to show Hitoshi Tayar's solo exhibition. It was happening last spring. How not to be seen. The, we took only the initials for the title. And it's a great video work. Have you shown it here? And what we did was, I saw the piece in Venice first, and I approached her with a very clear proposal. I said, I really want to develop an exhibition, taking all the elements from the piece. I want to use the exhibition space through the program. I want to turn it into a learning environment. Because for me, when you look at the image in this piece, they give me so much uh, space to talk about visual thinking and this calibration scale, all the reference you have from 1951 USA Army. It makes so much sense. Can we do that? She was very busy, and the only condition she had was I had to develop all the design and the structure, and she had to confirm. And it was a great lecture. It was one of the best lectures I think Stuttgart ever had, and the room was full, and I think they still talk about it. And Hito is a very interesting artist. She's a very, she's a critical mind, and I think you learn a lot from working with her. And Within the program at Künstler House, I, did, I started with solo exhibitions. And the solo exhibitions was titled Artistic Dialogues. Because there was a clear need. I wanted an institution to operate with a concern on methodological studies, methodological inquiries. Because, yes, research is very important and it is at the center of everything. But how can we develop research channels, forms, and formats that are borrowed, that are easily to borrow, travel, and exchange between us? So without any methodology, there is no meaning to investing in the research because all the research that are developed in the private data, they are at one point stuck, and there is no exchange, there is no translation between them. So, the, exhibition, uh, the exhibitions aim to develop a program together with the artists, basically shaping the institutional program and to reorganize the institutional space, even to understand the institutional time. Uh, we were very much interested in learning from the artists, so most of the exhibitions happened at Künstlerhaus was always having a space for artistic research, trying to bring the studio process back. This interest in the materiality was underlined, emphasized at many different levels. And mostly they left tracks 
in the exhibition space. Most of the things that we developed together, they stayed in the exhibition space, the architectural elements and everything. And then I did a program, a year-long performance program, Ich, in German, which means I. So I invited some artists to respond to this relationship with the space in an institutional setting, because from the very beginning, I imagined a space that looks like a studio space, because as an artist in your studio, basically it's a very open space. You can do your online banking, you can produce your work, you can exhibit your work on the wall. It's always transforming. It's an ongoing transformation on and off. And I thought, this is the institution, like thinking about the miniature and back to the reality today. Because if artists have found that this space squatted like 35 years ago, we have to somehow give it back to them, because when you read the text from them, I mean, my reference image was from the beginning was very clear. Joseph Boyce with Fluxus, with local celebrities talking about Kunst province or their Kunst metropolis, which is an interesting question because there was no one in the room. I several times screened this documentation and there was no one in the room. Nobody asked this question or reminded them of this very like, common term that we use every day. Context, contextuality. Interestingly, Stephen Villats, 1969, was talking about context in another way somewhere else, but in 1981, context was not in the room. So, parallel to the artistic dialogues, critical voices invited people like who are traveling around, like Lars van Larsen or Anzan Franke. And then there was an Istanbul project which functioned like a place to produce works and bring back to so it also used Istanbul as a kind of production site. The solo program was very uh, much based on investigating different levels and interests in the city context, like Nevin Alada and Şener Özmen were the first artists in the program. I think it was also a reaction for me to the German media because they all asked me in the beginning, are you going to show Turkish artists all the time? And I think it was a good statement to start with the Kurdish reality and the identity and an exhibition that transmits this directly to the audience in a very physical way. I think it's too phallic for me to deal with that. Yeah. And in the program there were very uh, strong emphasis on the context-sensitive projects like Wiegeetstir Stuttgart. Stuttgart, how are you doing, was trying to bring Stuttgart-related artists to the house back again and to create a kind of artistic panorama, like how the city and the artistic production in the city looks like from the windows of the institution, because institutions, again, could be very self-centered, and it definitely needs some time to open up the doors to the local uh, audience, local artists, and the participants at different levels. This, this doesn't need to be artistic. Between this relation, the relationship between the research and the methodology, this concerns me a lot because going back again to the very Boris Groys kind of question, if something has to be art today, you have to exhibit it. So basically we are exhibiting things on and off. And we do this job for things to become art, like a direct reference, of course. Art's function is to rather show, make visible the realities that are generally overlooked by taking aesthetic responsibility in a very explicit way for the design of the installation space, the artist reveals the hidden sovereign dimension of the contemporary democratic order that politics, for the most part, tries to conceal. 
The installation space is where we are immediately confronted with the ambitious character of contemporary notion of freedom that functions in our democracies as a tension between sovereign and the institutional freedom. The artistic installation is thus a space of unconcealment in a Heideggerian sense of the heterotopic power that is concealed behind the obscure transparency of the democratic order. And I immediately put Eritrogov next to it because she's very clear with this distinction. Without methodology, the search doesn't make sense. I think we are all responsible from this free research. So step by step, you, you can ask within an institutional setting. I mean, in the German context also you have freedom, intellectual freedom, it's protected by law. So when is it free and what is free? Uh, ending up this conversation about Kunstlerhaus, because I want to go on Artspace and open up the floor for the questions. I want to also talk a bit what I have been doing at Artspace. Um, Hito Steyer made a piece and it was also part of the Istanbul Biennial. I don't know if you have shown it here, but it's a very good question to again think about what can art institutions do. Is museum a battlefield? So, uh, very direct reference to the museums like Louvre and connecting it with revolutions, like the first thing people do when there's cows appearing, going into the museums and destroying it like an instinct. I think she was in investigating the sponsorship agreements between the Biennial Foundation and weapon industry, and she found out quite strong relationships, and she generated the research and the video around it. So, in a way, I think what can art institutions do? They can also collaborate with uh, black money and problematic power structures. Art space. So, Auckland, New Zealand. You, you are seeing images from the first exhibition. And the first exhibition had a very long life. It was opened in December, but till the opening, I made several events and installed some pieces before and after. Uh, like after the Christmas holiday and the New Year's break, the exhibition got another form. And the exhibition intended to be part of some big structures in the city, already existing structures like Auckland Pride Festival, Auckland Art Festival. So, And it collaborated with the online benefit auction, which was organized for Kobane by Hitoshi Tyler and Anton Vidokle. So it had several different collaborative partners, and it operated like a big space. It wanted to test the limits of the institution, and it developed the research to understand how can we change the institution, how can we create a perspective for making the change, which was already asked by the uh, local audience, because when I arrived, there was already a consensus uh, in the city, art space, which has to function like a Kunstale on the city map, didn't function as how it has to, because when you see Auckland city map, it's very clear, their museum structure calls itself a gallery, Auckland Art Gallery, and there are dealer galleries which are mostly showing New Zealand artists that made big success in the international context. 
So always something is missing to understand the international art context, which is more like from the European context, we can say, yes, it's the Kunsthalle form. But then what does a Kunsthalle do? And when do we need a Kunsthalle? And what is this size? What is this contemporary art institution that doesn't collect, make exhibitions? Basically, we are interested in an institution that doesn't only present or preserve, we are interested in an institution that develops content. So it's not a presenter, it's a content developer, it's a critical thinker, and it's not only interested in uh, showing, it's interested in producing, and inter it's interested in other relationships than the galleries or the museum structure. And there is also this community-based art institutions like Teoru, which are more Maori, Samoan, Pacifica context. So I did two things when I started on an ongoing series of events. This decision came out. I set up two groups. One is called Read with Art Space, and another one is called Think with Art Space. Read with Art Space was very practical because it invited the local audience to read together certain texts. The first text we, we have chosen was Totem and Tabu from Freud. And then, and then after several sessions, we invited Lucille Holmes, an academic voice from Elam, from the university, to give a lecture about our process. This was very fun functional because Read with Art Space turned into an initiation that thinks about how we write and read today. But at the end of the second exhibition process, which is on now, on view, imaginary audience scale, we produced maybe 15, 16 artist texts, and one third of these artist texts were written by the volunteers, by, the, by this group, Read with Art Space. So, in a way, we managed to produce texts, the development of texts, with our audience. At Künstlerhaus, I managed to operate this at another level because text development is also an important job for us to locate research, make it uh, accessible for the public, develop a pedagogical context, but if you want to create different layers of reading of the art piece, it's a necessity. At Künstlerhaus, I developed a lot of interviews, so the intense installation process was there because I managed to organize the designer and the translator at such a tight schedule that the installation was also including the interview, and almost the last days of installation was also last days of editing and designing. But here, Read with Art Space managed to do something else. The intense installation process was shared by the volunteers of Read with Art Space. And what is Think with Art Space? Think with Art Space is a closed group. Read with Art Space is open, but Think with Art Space is composed of four or five people, professionals based in Auckland, curators, artists from different gender and background, like ethnic background. And I meet them regularly. They are not allowed to talk about it until I leave the city, and basically they give me all the information about the city. If your board doesn't function, or it doesn't function in the way that you are used to from your German context, you develop your own think tank group. This was something like this. So it works very good, like approaching to the public and private at different levels, and this intense program with different festivals, contributing to different levels of uh, organizations. I, it, they gave me a lot of uh, space to 
understand what kind of institution I am dealing with. So the big space you see now, I like to talk about this place as visual thinking. So it became a platform. What I did was art space building is shared by another, with us by another institution, Natonga, which is film archive. So we invited an artist, Billy Apple, which is a very art historical name in the uh, New Zealand context. And he gave me a wall as part of his historical art practice, gallery abstracts and interventions. So we redefined the space between us and Natonga because thinking about the Gestalt, it was confusing. The film archive exhibition space was there, an art space was there. Like how you are kind of dealing with this whole building now. Which space belongs to which institution? Am I in the right exhibition space? Is this an exhibition from art space? Or is this film screening from... For the general audience, they don't care. And I think for the for us, for the organization of space, we have to be very clear. Now what we achieved is left film archive, right art space. So after this step, the second step was, I mean, the images are pretty bad. I think they are the web versions, so I'm really sorry about that. But still, you can have a sense of the current show. Uh, the second show, imaginary audience scale. I think I decided to make this show being based in Auckland for a while. The research was already waiting in my folder for a very long time. I was waiting for the right time to produce this exhibition. And after my conversations with the young local artist, I wanted to make a show which is more about an art historical context. Also, it managed to extend the exhibition space in another way that you see Lawrence Wiener piece at the car park now. And, and it also created an experiment on the institution. You see this red wall, which belongs to Billy Apple and redefines the space between us and Natonga. So the exhibition was composed of two levels. First, the presentation of this red wall with the works from Billy Apple that were never shown and they are from the 60s. And then later, Yoko Ono, Stephen Villatz, Lawrence Wiener, Natalia Elel, they all came into the show and turned it into a big group show. The references from the late 60s, imaginary audience scale is a psychology test and it measures the scale, the self-perception, the fake uh, perception that you have being observed, being followed, being watched by others. It was necessary to make this statement in such a small city. And now what we are working on is, we are working on an institution that will operate at different levels, uh, bringing different departments together a bit, which is they have an education department and they have a reading room. And I think it makes sense to combine them together under learning and unlearning. So the big space you see, it's more like a visual thinking center and think public internet access to pub, Public access to internet is urgent. There is a space for creating a lab between moving image and non-moving image. And I want to bring all the management and the administration together under operations. So we can have a huge space, which is also going to host the events called conversations. And there is a discussion between me and the architects now. I want a kind of modular architecture that can open up the space to these sections. But if we want, we can close it. So it's going to be more like a modular architecture. 
I have a lot to talk about, and I think at one point I should stop and it should turn into a conversation. Let's stop here. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. I can talk forever. <laughs>